Hey everybody, what's up? It's Nick Davenport, aka Mr. Mental Muscle. And today we have the first inaugural episode of the Mental Muscle Podcast. And today we have a special guest, Dr. Tai Tashiro. He's the author of two great books, The Science of Happy Ever After, as well as Awkward. And I'm a big fan of his work. I've talked about it numerous times on some of my channel posts. And we have him here today. We're going to discuss a bunch of different topics to help you with your everyday life, how you can maybe do better at dating or your already marriage or relationship or figure out how you can use your awkwardness or other skills in society to be better. So with that being said, Dr. Tashiro, you can break down a little bit about your journey and we can get right into it. Hey, thanks for having me on uh, today. It's great to talk to you uh, here through a conversation. So we know each other over social media for a while, but uh, really excited to talk to you today. So I'll tell you a little bit about my background. Um, my background's in psychology. So I went to graduate school for psychology at the University of Minnesota. And that, that was a really great nice. institution and uh, fit for my personality and kind of the way I like to learn. It just so happened that some of the first people to study romantic relationships using the scientific method were housed in the Department of Psychology at Minnesota. And so I just kind of, by serendipity, fell in with some of those folks and uh, was just really taken by this research where they were describing and predicting things with something as you know complex and abstract as romantic love. I just thought that was so cool. So uh, enjoyed my time there, uh, you know, did research on the topic and took a job in academia as a professor for a number of years and uh, taught a course that was kind of integral to where I'm at now. It was an undergraduate course on the psychology of romantic relationships. Uh, a lot of the students, it was a big class, like 200 students, but they talked a lot, oh, wow. which was great, right? Really interactive. They asked a lot of questions for friends of theirs about uh, different romantic problems. And, you know, one of the things that happened was um, when I'd be taking the Metro from University of Maryland back to uh, D.C., and sometimes I would just kind of kick myself because I knew there was a better answer to give for some of these practical mm -hmm. questions they had there was a perfect study or, or set of studies that could have addressed the student's question, but in the moment, I just couldn't translate it fast enough. And so that kind of laid this idea for me that there's all this amazing research on romantic relationships that wouldn't it be great to um, transport that information to a broader audience uh, through books and you know other kinds of media. And so that's what I've been doing the, the past few years is focusing on you know, spreading the good word, really, about mm -hmm. some of the great research on interpersonal relationships, whether that's romantic relationships or things like social awkwardness and social skill. Well, I think that should be a required course for, for all students. You know, we, we live in this very social world where, like you said, we're more connected than ever. That's how we literally met. So the fact that it's evolved in a way that the stuff maybe 30, 40 years ago that we consider normal social situations probably can't really not, they can still fly, obviously, but they've kind of evolved into a different, I guess, set of rules or schemas on how we understand them in the moment. Exactly. It seems like now, you know, it's every two, you know, year or two, like there's this turnover in these ways that we communicate with each other and what the social expectations are. And so it, it can be tough, you know, whether it's just uh, platonic kinds of relationships or romantic kinds of relationships. It's the technology has sped things up so much. I think it's hard for even the best of us to keep up sometimes. It is. And I can actually personally relate to this because I was in a relationship with my daughter's mother. We're not together anymore. 
But when we broke up, it was about 2015. So from the time we started to the time we ended, let's say 2012 to 2015, I would say not just like social media started evolving, but dating apps, because I remember being a kid, I'm, I'm 34 now, I'm not sure how old you are, Dr. Shiro, but you probably can remember when, or definitely we both can remember when it was more like awkward to say, hey, we met online. And then when I got out of the relationship, it was the other way around. I had people saying, you should try Tinder or Bumble. And I'm like, what's that? Like I, I was aware of it, but I wasn't really like into it. And it was weird for me because I'm kind of an introverted guy. So like you said, the rules, I didn't really understand how do you talk digitally? Because when I went in, it wasn't that long before, but it was kind of like I was used to the actual, the rules of courting that kind of were slightly different before that. Oh, absolutely. You know, is the like the, I guess what we call the meet cute now was just like the way you met people <laughs> before, right? Uh, you'd, you'd meet face to face. And yeah, it was interesting, you know, when when I did the first book, The Signs of Happily Ever After on, on the dating, I started writing that, I think, in 2011, maybe 2012. And, you know, and the, the crazy thing was that like app dating wasn't even a thing. Like Match and eHarmony <laughs> were starting to be a thing, mm -hmm. but there was still that kind of uh, almost stigma <laughs> against it. We're like, oh yeah, we met. We met online or whatever, <laughs> uh, which is wild to me because it's just like 10 years ago, right? And then when we did the update uh, last year uh, on that book, all of a sudden it was like, wow, you know, it's app dating is now just <laughs> everywhere. And it's also actually supplied a lot of great data uh, for oh, yeah, understanding romantic relationships and people's preferences and, and decisions. So from your educated opinion, as well as maybe your personal opinion, um, would you say that it maybe has helped dating or hurt it, or maybe a little bit of both? Because I guess with every good, there comes some downsides. Yeah, yeah. So I'm I'm conflicted to tell you the truth. So I, I try to explain this in a way that's somewhat clear, but I have these contradictory thoughts, I guess, and opinions in in my head. So um, I, I think there's nothing wrong with online dating, and I think from the perspective of growing your opportunity or your dating pool, mm -hmm. I mean, it's it's unbelievable, right? Uh, compared to how most of human history has gone where, uh, you know, the, my mom grew up in some small town. She went to, I think her senior class was like 12 students, oh, wow. <laughs> you know, and she describes like the conundrum of finding a prom date and, and that kind of thing. It's like, but that was most of human history. Things were like that, right? Mm -hmm. uh, so now we just have like hundreds or thousands of, of options. So I, I think in that way, it's great. Um, I think if someone is, you know, and if, if someone has preferences in dating that are not typical, then it can be great, you know? Um, and so, so I've certainly supported it in that way. Now here's, here's the part where I get a little conflicted though. Um, so one of the, uh, kind of robust models they use to predict commitment, um, in psychological research is called social exchange theory. And it's actually the same algorithm or the same model that they're using over in the econ department or business school to oh, predict wow. when people will buy and sell their house or their stock <laughs> or whatever else. And it's just really three, it gets more complicated, but it's kind of three core elements. It's what do you want? You know, what are your expectations? What do you think you're getting out of the current investment or the current partner? And what are your, what they call attractive alternative options? So would there be other investments or other people mm -hmm. that you think would meet your needs better? And you can kind of easily imagine between these three variables, how that would predict commitment. Now, 
what online dating has done is it has exponentially increased people's perceived attractive alternative options. Yep. <laughs> so, Most you know, our minds aren't really ready to handle that kind of calculus. Um, and so, you know, a lot of the stuff you're hearing from Gen Z, for example, is that it's really hard to find a committed relationship for someone who's who's up for that. And um, I think with the online dating, and you, you think about that algorithm and those three variables, it's easier to understand how that would be the case, because people are always thinking like, you know, the grass could be greener somewhere else. Yep. Mm -hmm. And that's interesting, because with Tinder, I don't know all of them, I think most of them are around the same amount, but they get about 100 or so swipes or matches a day. So that's the minimum. And I know you can buy packages where you get unlimited. So you can only imagine if you swipe, let's just say on minimum 500 people a day, you match with, say, I don't know the numbers, but maybe 10 percent. That's 50 people. That, that, like you said, we come from a time period where we had villages or towns of 500 to 1,000 people. You're, you're exponentially expanding that and what they call it, the curse of choice or illusion of choice, where the more options you have, the less likely you're going to make a decision. So, and I, I've used this term, I, I think I mentioned to you before, there's no more saber-toothed tigers. And it's like our brain, like you said, hasn't caught up with the, the adaptations that we're exposed to now. And it, I don't know where it's going to go. I'm curious to see what it looks like in another 20 years or so. Exactly. You know, like I, I can barely, <laughs> I can barely handle the complexity of one relationship, <laughs> much less, you know, juggling a bunch of different ones or trying trying to figure out among say 50 different options. And uh, so, yeah, there's a, there's that tyranny of freedom or tyranny of choice that you talked about. And, uh, you know, it's, it's, as they say in, in that research, it's the same thing, like going into Target, trying to find a dish detergent or a, mm. a, uh, a laundry detergent. You're just like so overwhelmed with just too many options and it can be kind of paralyzing when, when that happens. So, yeah, I do think that applies to some of the dating difficulties that we're having, like kind of on a broader societal scale. Well, running with that target analogy, I like that. I actually used to work there a while back as a stalker, and I actually have stock detergents. So going with that analogy, we usually make choices sometimes off of frivolous decisions. So going back to the, the detergents, some may have better stain power or some may last longer, or fresher colors. But going to the dating, comparing it, do you think we may make decisions based off of some frivolous things? I, I guess I want to segue into this. And it's one of my favorite things you've, you've done is the three wish thing. And you talk about height and other factors like how we make these decisions that may be arbitrary that don't really lead to actual relationship success. Yeah. So why don't we set up the kind of three wishes thing first and then mm -hmm. we can go to uh, some of the frivolity <laughs> we exhibit during partner selection. But um, yeah, so let's imagine like you have a fairy godmother and, you know, she shows up. She says, hey, Nick, I'm going to give you three wishes for your ideal <laughs> romantic partner. Well, you know, great, that, that's, that's fantastic. But as these fables go, you want to use those wishes wisely, right? So I, I give this example, let's say uh, there's, there's someone, uh, there's a woman who's selecting among 100 eligible bachelors, kind of a bachelor type situation, right? And these gentlemen have been selected randomly from general population, and she gets to choose among these hundred folks, you know, who she wants to go out with. Well, let's say she says, all right, um, I'm going to use my three wishes and I want someone who's tall. And let's say to her, that means someone who is six foot or taller. 
Well, about 80 of those guys would walk out of the room at that point. <laughs> they get cut, right? Because only about 20% of men are six foot or taller in the United States. Whoa. Okay. So that's, that's a big drain, right? Um, now let's say she goes to her, her second wife. So let's say she says, I want someone who's hot. And to her, that means someone who's an eight out of 10 or 80th percentile <laughs> or better, right? And so what would happen is, you know, about another 16 of the remaining 20 would walk out of the room. So just with two wishes, she's gone from 100 possibilities for partners, you know, down to four. And with almost any other wish she makes, she's going to be left with <laughs> one guy or a fraction <laughs> of a guy, right? <laughs> And so it's unbelievable. And, and people can do this with, with their wishes. And we would do this in class all the time. I'd have students write down what do you want. They'd write down, you know, 15, 20, 25 things they want in a partner. And that's, oh, that's wow. fine. I say, hey, yeah, go big, dream big. Um, but then, you know, I'd have people volunteer if they were okay with me having to go through their list. And we would just see how they how their three wishes would quickly take them down to one person or a fraction of a person so the, the one of the main things people can do to improve their dating life <laughs> and it's i don't want people to settle uh, what, what i want people to do is i want them to get the traits and characteristics in a partner that are actually the most important to them that's what i want and so make a big list but then what i would say is now be you know really thoughtful about rank ordering the things you want in a partner the wishes you have for a partner uh from let's say one to ten or even one to twenty and really emphasize those first three and, and be like hey what would, what would be the three non-negotiable things that i absolutely need in a partner and when people give it that kind of thought you know i, I think we all have the wisdom within us to actually you know, think about, okay, these are the things that are actually going to matter in the long run. When folks do that, they make much better decisions. So, um, that, you know, that's the three wishes, uh, you know, and then I, where, where that took me to next then was to think about, well, how do people actually spend their wishes? Is there data about that? And, and there certainly is. Uh, one of my, you know, favorite studies uh, that we did for the, the updated version that just came out from some of the online dating stuff was a, a study of Hinge users. And I think it was over 10,000, you know, Hinge users. And they wanted to see a number of things. But one of the most interesting things they found was how long do people spend on a profile before they swipe on it? And um, as you can imagine, the results were a little disheartening. <laughs> like three seconds? Yeah, a little bit less. Yeah. So, so. Less? Oh, I thought it was being uh, conservative. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, but, you know, two seconds people would look at and then they'd swipe right or left. And, you know, one of the things that happens with online dating that I don't think folks always realize is that we can get careless because there's so many possibilities, right? But when you when you swipe left, that's that's a hard rule out. That, that means not only have you lost that person for whatever characteristics you were deciding upon, which is probably just the profile picture, yeah. right? Um, you know, what I see happening is, well, maybe you're losing someone with great character, moral character. You know, maybe you're losing someone with an unbelievable personality or, or unbelievable talents, you know. All that's going out the window when, when you make those decisions with online dating. Or if you're setting filter preferences ahead of time, you know, folks want to think through, like, this isn't just a preference. This is actually a hard rule out 
that I'm doing when, when I when I set these filters. So, you know, and I'm not I'm not saying that people shouldn't go for someone who's attractive or <laughs> it's now OK to go for some of these a little more frivolous kinds of things. But, uh, you know, dating should be fun. But at the same time, you don't want to let those, you know, kind of careless decisions get in the way of you getting what's actually really important to you. Well, I guess that kind of goes into, and you've talked about this in your books, is like, what is the outcome of what are you trying to do with these people? Like, we've segued into, or I guess, not even 100 years ago, let's just go 40, 50 years ago, the tent of marriage or dating was typically marriage. Now it's kind of like, I've, there's new terms I'm sure you heard of, like situationship and things like that. And I think it's like, since we have these more options now, we don't even look, say, hey, I want to date him or her because I want to marry them eventually. It's because... It's something to do. And like you said, it might look good or it might be fun. And I know you talk about novelty seeking that, that that's something I personally, I think I've experienced because I'm very introverted. So it's like, I'm not necessarily afraid to go out and have fun, but it's like, it's not necessarily the first thing. And I've noticed that that's been more, I guess, in the last few years, a big thing for people getting out and doing stuff, you know? So it's like, if you're not, what they call it, the spark, if you're not going to spark their attention or spark that, whatever the butterflies, it might be a deterrent and that might be the best guy or girl for you. But that one or two dates, it just didn't do it for you. And now we have all this choice now. So they know, hey, I got 20 other people in my messages to try out next. <laughs> that's that's right. You know, so there's there's the fallback. And then you see those perceived attractive alternative options, right? Influencing people's decision making behavior or their willingness to try to maybe give someone a second chance, like on a, you know, like a second date or something like that, or letting something slowly develop. I, I've, I don't think I've ever heard that phrase. <laughs> you know, there's rarely mentioned uh, when I hear people's dating stories. So yeah, there's, you know, two things you point out that I think are really great. And, you know, the first one was just that, well, what is the end point, you know, that, that people want, and it used to be pretty narrow. Uh, well, you wanted to get married, you want to get married by a certain age. Now, I don't know that that's, we want to go back to that necessarily, because that didn't always work for everybody. Mm -hmm. um, but at the same time, like, you know, all of a sudden, it's not unusual to hear folks like all of a sudden they're 40 and they're like, whoa, <laughs> you know, like, how'd I get here? And maybe they wanted to settle down, but they were just, you know, they weren't focused on actually what they wanted out of their relationship life. And I'm fine with people doing whatever they want. Someone wants to be single. Mm -hmm. Hey, great. You know, if that's what's going to make you happy. But, you know, once again, I think people just want to take some time to sit down and be thoughtful about it and be like, hey, what, you know, what is it the, what's the end point I'm really shooting for here? And given that end point, now how can I work backwards and make some wise decisions about how to, about how to get there? And, you know, once again, I think the good news is, is people have that wisdom within them. They just need to harness it and, and kind of, kind of, kind of focus it. And that's why I like your work, because in my field, if you go into what I do, especially if it's with my sport teams or even my tactical, it's, it's kind of the same approach. Like, I'm not necessarily going to make them a better fighter or a better police or a businessman, whatever population I work with. My goal is to educate them. Like you said, if they know better, they can sit on it. And it's like, OK, if I know how to process information under pressure or I know these different cognitive biases, I'm big on teaching my athletes or my clients cognitive biases because a lot of people make bad mistakes, not just because they're not good under pressure is because they don't even realize how their thoughts are processed. So I'm big on mitigating the risks with my clients. So it's like, okay, if you know what's going to happen, then at least we may not be able to stop it, but we at least know which way we're going. And to segue into why I asked you before we did this about um, the red pill space or fresh and fit particularly is, is not more so to go into like 
their content specifically. I don't know if you checked out any contents because they have a lot of viral clips that might come off unbecoming. But the reason I brought it up because they do do something that I saw a parallel with some of your work and they called it uh, for the sake of what it is, the delusional calculator. And it kind of takes the concept of the three wishes in a sense, but it just takes literal data from the uh, U.S. Census as well as the Department of Labor and I guess a few other factors that's from the government. And they put in all the girls that they ask this question, what they want, and it gives the ex exact percentage based on the census. So the last one was three years ago. So it's fairly recent. So they look at it and say, okay, it's 0 0.005. Or they'll say, okay, let's change it. They'll change the height or change the income or the race, whatever. And it'll be like 15%. And it's like showing them that you don't, and they say the same thing you say is like, you don't have to do this. It's your choice. But if your goal is to get married or do this or do that, you need to kind of have a plan and know what your options are because the biggest rebuttal I hear to things like that is there's 7 billion people in the world. And I guess that's the illusion of, we know that we do have 7 billion people in the world and with Tinder and social media, you can talk to someone in Africa, Japan, Russia, wherever, but what are the odds of that person being your actual dating market and you factor in age, gender, whatever your, your specific gender choice, you've got to weed a lot of people out or even married people themselves. You can't date married people or, you're not supposed to, but <laughs> so it's like mitigating the risk, I guess, is a point is like people need to look at it like or should look at it like that. Yeah, no, I, I totally agree with you, you know, and I think it's like um, people use probabilities really well in other parts of their life. You know, if someone was drafting a fantasy <laughs> football player, <laughs> also exactly. they're a real scholar about probabilities, <laughs> you know, OK, what's the probability this person scores X number of touchdowns or, you know, the, the chances that this you're going to average this number of points. Um, they'll be like, hey, I'll, I'll take a 5% probability bump, right, uh, for something this like fun, like fantasy football. Uh, but all of a sudden, like the dating life, it's like, no, I want everything <laughs> and not think about probabilities. It's like, oh, man, let's just, uh, you know, let's let's apply some of that good intelligence you have to this thing that's actually more important, I would think, you know, in, in somebody's life. So, uh, you know, and one thing I want to go back to real quick before we move on is like, I, I'm going to playfully disagree with something you said earlier, which is I, I think you actually are making you're teaching people to be better boxers or teaching people to be better athletes in the best way possible. This would be my opinion, um, be, be, because what you're what you're doing, as I hear it, is you're not coming in heavy handed saying, hey, this is the way you got to <laughs> this is the way you got to do mm -hmm. things. You're saying, hey, here's the here's the situation uh, that we can anticipate. And here's some scaffolding to think about how that's going to play out or some structure, right? So some strategy. And let's just get you better about anticipating these things, right? Mm -hmm. And making it higher probability, you're going to make the, the right decision or the best decision in situations. And, you know, trying to work against making the impulsive or bad decision. Yeah. Um, you know, so like some of the stuff you do with the Stroop task or some of these other cognitive tasks, you know, that that's like a, a real life kind of playing out of hey let's be aware that sometimes our impulses can lead us to make the bad decision and let's have some self-control some executive function to say all right i understand the risk now let's actually go to the secondary decision that i thought out ahead of time that's actually the much more adaptive way to way to go and uh you know for me personally like i, I love that way of teaching and i i you know, I think that's how people learn, learn the best. So, you know, I, I think the stuff you're doing with the, the conditioning, you know, whether it be for sport or police officers or whatever, 
I, I think that's the best way to do it. I appreciate that. I should clip that and it'd be an unpaid or a paid sponsorship for you because you said it perfectly and I explained it just like that. And it's like, it feels good to hear someone else say it because at the end of the day, our, our brain, our mind, it, it's a, I know it's cliche, but it's the most important part of it. Obviously we need every part of our body, but it literally runs the show. It's the behavioral side. It's the physiological side. So we know, obviously that's our backgrounds, but it's like, I see there's a segue and and we can use this as a, a transition into like, say, how people are more aware of like mental health or just the mind because people talk about mindfulness and people are more socially aware, or at least trying to be for the for the masses. So going into that. So let's talk about awkward. So we talked about relationships, dating, and this can kind of carry over. But I liked awkward, too. I don't know which one I like better, but awkward was good, I think, for me, at least, because I related to it a lot. Like I, I mentioned before we got on the call that I was about six feet going into high school. I was a jock. So I didn't really get the physical kind of like torments. But since my interests, I liked RPG video games like Zelda. I didn't really like sport games. Even though I love playing sports, I really didn't get into like Madden or anything like like I had them, but it was not my go to. So I don't really get along, not get along, but I didn't really connect as much with my social group as much. But I typically got made fun of, but in a playful way, not like a, Hey Nick, you're, you're, you're going to get thrown in the trash more. So like, Oh, look at Nick. He's out there reading in the library. And that's the actual tone I got before. Funny, right? Like <laughs> reading is a bad thing. Right. <laughs> but yeah. So what is it that you think? Like, well, I guess obviously you're, you're an expert at this, but why is it that awkwardness is one, I guess a problem and two, how does it even gets, how do you get to that point? What makes awkwardness? Um, yeah, well, I appreciate you sharing that because it's it's been one of the great joys actually of doing the um, the awkward book is is hearing from folks who have read it and you know, people who I would never think had a history of awkwardness. Like, yeah, so I, I used to be super awkward or, or I still am or whatever. I'm like, oh, wow, that's that's amazing, you know. And uh, yeah, you know, there's some some of the terminology I think is kind of good to sort out at, at the start. So like nerdiness i kind of think of as overlapping like if you have a venn diagram of you know it's kind of two circles i think it overlaps nerdiness with uh with awkwardness now uh nerdiness kind of taps into the part of awkwardness that, uh, that i would call the obsessive interest so you know the you tend to get really focused on something it, it can be like a nerdy kind of topic like books or a certain kind of video game or something like that but it's really this deep immersion and, you know, to the point sometimes it's not socially helpful <laughs> all, yep. all the time. Uh, you know, awkwardness uh, in its purest form, I kind of think about as a, a difficulty or lack of ability with social situations. So it's, it's not a total lack of ability, but it's just like, you know, it's a profound kind of difficulty understanding social skills, um, understanding the rules of communication or what someone's trying to convey to you or, or how to convey a message to somebody else clearly. And then the third components, like the obsessive interests, you know, and getting really kind of narrowly focused on something and um, sometimes having a hard time then, right. Get getting off that obsessive interest and onto other things like making eye contact or, <laughs> you know, oh, yeah. uh, attending to someone's social needs. So, yeah, you know, awkwardness is not a, doesn't make someone a bad person. Um, but it does show some heritability. So people do have these kind of propensities towards awkwardness. Uh, but I've also found that over time, a lot of awkward people 
learn to be more what I call socially fluent, right? So they yeah. kind of get more smooth <laughs> with understanding a wide range of social situations and, and how to navigate those. Yeah, I like that term socially fluent because I can say, like, I can dabble in both sides. Like, I'm not, uh, like, I can't go out type of person. I could, but I prefer being to myself, thinking in my thoughts. So I'm, that's why I would say I'm introverted and due to social media, a lot of people think I'm more extroverted because going back to how social media has taken over, they only see me there. You know, they don't see me the the 98% of my day when I'm sitting up here in my office just working on stuff or if I'm in my downstairs uh, doing something, recording content. So it's like they only judge off that. But I think with awkwardness, it's like you said, they'd be socially fluent, but the people on the other side of the awkwardness, they're typically, it's, a, it's another language to them. <laughs> like, it's like they don't interpret it the way you know, the person seeing it in that real time moment might think this is what I'm supposed to do. And the person interpreting is like, wait, what are you doing? And even though they don't get like maybe ostracized, they usually end up being on the lower rung of the cool kids or even even as adults. I'm not going to lie. As a kid, I grew up thinking like when I get out of school, I'm going to be the guy and I'm going to get my, my revenge by being successful. And, and I learned slowly but surely that that wasn't the way to go, because now I'm I've gotten better. I've adapted, obviously, because you learn these cues like, you know, better at 25, 30 versus six, not to like just look off into the distance while someone's talking to you. Or I think you mentioned like certain regions of the face to look at, like the, the chin versus the eyes or correct me if I'm wrong. I know that's, that's, that's totally right. So it, there's kind of a number of predictable behaviors that accompany social awkwardness that explains why awkward people have a hard time deciphering social cues or you know, kind of knowing what to do. Uh, and you're referring to one of my favorite studies, which are these um, eye tracking studies. So they can do these fancy lab setups where they can watch where the pupil is focused on a computer screen within millimeters. And um, in some of these tasks, what they'll do is they'll show, they'll flash faces on the screen and they'll say, hey, just, um, you know, pay attention to these faces as, as they pop up and we'll have some questions for you. And what they find is that people who are socially fluent, well, their eyes reflexively focus on the eye region of those faces. And that's a, that's a really good thing to do because the eye region is the most information rich part of the face, right? Um, if you want to know what someone's feeling and what they're thinking, what their intent might be, no place better than to look as the eyes to the window to the soul, as they say, right? Yeah. <laughs> uh, but the awkward people... <laughs> Well, what they what they find in those eye tracking studies is that when the picture pops up, they reflexively look at the chin or at the corner of the ear. And those are much less information rich areas <laughs> of, of the face. Right. Um, but what, what I like about that is it shows you in a really concrete way that the awkward person is behind right away then. Right. In the social interaction, because they are not looking where they need to look. Um, the other thing I like about those studies is the explanation for why that occurs. And so sometimes people think like if an awkward person is not looking them in the eye, that the awkward person is not paying attention or they're being disrespectful or something like that. Um, but in fact, the, the best explanation is that they're averting their eyes to the chin or the corner of the ear or their shoes, um, because looking in the eye region is too overstimulating for them. Uh, you know, almost like if you're a socially fluent person, <laughs> if you're ever talking to someone who looks in the, in the eyes for way too long and doesn't break eye contact, it gets like too intense. Like that's kind of what it feels like for an awkward person all the time. And so they're actually looking away 
so that they can regulate themselves and listen to what you're saying or stay engaged with what you're saying. And so that's just one of those little things where it's like, if the awkward person can understand, okay, this is what's happening, I'm getting overwhelmed, but then learn to work through that intensity. And the person who's not awkward can have some empathy for the situation until the awkward person gets up to speed. Um, then, you know, they can, they can overcome that situation, get the awkward person to build the skill necessary. And, uh, you know, for me, it was the same, you know, same thing when I was a kid, like I, I had a hard time looking people in the eye and, you know, fortunately I had, I had great parents who kind of drilled me almost in an athletic or military like way to, uh, to get better at looking people in the eye and making appropriate eye contact. And, you know, they'd always say like, Hey, Ty, you, you do that. You know, we know it's uncomfortable, but you're doing that to make the other person feel at ease and to make the other person feel welcome. And when they would add that additional explanation, you know, that was really motivating for me. Cause I, of course I wanted people to feel um, like engaged and feel like I was interested in who they, who they were and what they were, what they were about. See, that's that's what I like having these conversations because that information right there, I guarantee most people don't know. And they wouldn't even think to know. It's not that they're, I guess, for lack of a better word, they're ignorant of it, but it's not that they want to be mean or or think they're getting disrespected. Because I know for a fact I've had interactions just like that where people thought I wasn't listening or and getting into like maybe even the cognitive side of it, you say it's overwhelming. It's gonna be hard to process information, talking about like what working memory and stuff like that, when I'm trying to trying to figure out my mood state, let alone what you're saying, you know, and that's just overwhelming, but most people are going to see it as what's going on, man. We're just talking. <laughs> and it's like, you're misconstruing that for something, I guess most people, I would say, I, I wouldn't put a number on it, but most people is just a conversation for them. It's like, it's like a, a fully engaged task almost like you have to really put effort, like something most people say is like walking. It's a marathon for other people or I guess more so an Olympic level sprint, I should say. Yep. Yep. No, exactly. You know, and so I think, you know, one of the nice things about doing the I'd forgotten about some of my awkwardness, fortunately, I guess, <laughs> you know, because <laughs> uh, in adulthood, I'd, you know, figured out I'd be socially fluent in enough situations. But gosh, when I went back to some of those stories from my, you know, teenage years and, and, and childhood, I was like, wow, super, <laughs> I was a super awkward kid. But, I, you know, it made me even more grateful for just how patient and understanding a lot of folks were in my life, whether they were friends and peers um, or, you know, coaches, um, uh, you know, adults who are mentors, you know, the, the best thing I think folks can do, is, and I, everybody knows someone who's a little bit awkward, <laughs> right? Mm -hmm. They have someone in their life, like, you know, if you can just think, think first, like what, what's the person's intent? You know, and I think this can go for all of us, maybe in a lot of different social situations. Like just taking the time, think about, hey, what's what, what do I think this person's intent is? And do I think it's good? And for most people, right, we're going to be like, yeah, hey, this this person, I think this person has good intent. And then it can slow us down a little bit to be like, so then what's going on <laughs> with this interaction or with these social cues or behaviors that are happening? And then, you know, with that distance and that space and and empathy, then it can be like, all right, so some of these little things happening right here that are leading to a cumbersome social interaction aren't a big deal, actually. Mm -hmm. And uh, then we can get through things and, and and get to a good place. So, yeah, I mean, that's kind of how I got into the awkward topic in the first place was I was observing some of my uh, 
some of my awkward friends and social interactions and watching them not do well, <laughs> like at bars or parties or whatever. And I, I was like bummed out for my, you know, for my friends who were awkward. But uh, yeah, I had this thought like, here's this person who has, you know, this tremendous character who's been an amazing friend to me, who's, who's super interesting in so many ways. And they're getting shut down by these other people, you know, based on three or four minutes of social interaction. You know, and then the other person's like, oh, I got to go get a drink or I got to go to the restroom or whatever. Um, I'm like, if awkward people could just skip those little niceties, <laughs> those yeah. small little social things that happen, the small talk and everything in the first three or four minutes. I was like, I think they'd actually be doing a lot better. So, um, yeah, it's one of the weird things about awkwardness is it's just the the small things that tend to trip up awkward people. But if you're patient and you actually get to know the person, you oftentimes find someone who's really just a fascinating, interesting person. I agree with that because it's kind of like uh, the the social cues that just society over the X amount of years humans existed is like, you say, hey, how you doing? Fine, how are you? It's the automatic response no matter what. Some people might take a brief moment and say, I'm not really doing fine, but they say, wait, and they respond, fine, how are you? But that, that brief moment, they had to really process it. So it's like, like you say, if we get to the more deeper conversation or the more the 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 depth of the conversation, it's gonna show that, oh, this this guy or this girl, she's she's pretty interesting. And it's like, but it, I guess these formalities are just what as a part of our cultures. And I don't care where you go, that's there's some form of that, right? So it's like well, some kind of like social contract, right? Like we're gonna do the shake hands or we're gonna, how are you? I'm fine, I'm you know, and these kind of social niceties, um, it's kind of like, okay, so we understand the same playbook. <laughs> almost you know and so i guess we can be cool with each other but you know a lot of times now in society we don't go past that like so many of our so much of our stuff <laughs> uh because of social media or texting or whatever else it like doesn't go past the it doesn't allow as easily to get into more depth but that's really where the good stuff yeah. is of course right so yeah no i think it's interesting and you know as an aside i'll, I'll say like i think it's been one of the things that was interesting to me uh kind of going through the research on the psychology of awkwardness was thinking about athletes sometimes um, who have that obsessive interest. And, you know, some of my favorite athletes of all time, uh, you know, were, were kind of awkward people, actually, when you got down to it. Now, they had learned to be good, to, to be socially fluent, like in front of the camera or in, you know, kind of selected uh, spaces. But the more you heard about them, the more you're like, wow, this person actually was like, was like pretty awkward. But as part of that awkwardness, you know, their, their razor sharp focus and that kind of like tireless persistence was actually a key ingredient to them uh, achieving extraordinary things in their, um, in their sport. So, you know, that's, that's the other side of awkwardness is while um, awkward people can struggle with some of these kind of mundane social niceties uh, they have this like kind of tiger inside, right? Where, boy, they can really focus in on things and they will just be like obsessive about their pursuit of certain goals. And is that what you call the rage to master? The rage, yeah, the race and one of my favorite psychological terms. Yeah, so this woman, Ellen Winter, who studies gifted youth. Okay. I kind of coined that term and it's just such a great description, right? And some of the elite athletes you've probably been around. I've seen, yeah, I've seen it firsthand. Yeah, so... I didn't make it to that level, so I was kind of like that. But for all the ones that did make it to the highest level, they are exactly what you. And honestly, since I, I like personality psychology and I dabble in that as well, I always look at those things. 
because you see them on, like I said, on TV. I get the fortune to see some of the highest level athletes when they're not on the screen. And I can see how their behaviors, mannerism, and you described it perfectly. And there, I guess there's a carryover because like you said, you have to have that, that difference to go. Cause I guess, correct me if I'm wrong, to be more socially fluent, you kind of have to conform a little to some degree. It's not saying it's a bad thing, but you kind of have to go with the crowd to some extent. And going back to what you said, an athlete, they're not going to go to the party tonight. They're going to the weight room. I've done this. I have athletes who've done this. They're not going to say, hey, let's watch a marathon of this reality show. They're going to watch something that's going to better their, their, their game or whatever. So it's like, like I said, you kind of have that. And I think you mentioned the book as well is like throughout human history, why didn't it get sorted out of the gene pool? And you mentioned like kind of like if you didn't have those people when we have adapted to getting things that we call now modern conveniences, but those things didn't just come overnight. Someone had to think outside the box and be like, wait a minute, instead of doing it this way, what if I tried it this way? And they're like, that's weird. But then it's like, wait, that takes a third of the time. And next thing you know, we have irrigation and, and roads and whatever else. And now we got planes. And so it's like, it's, it's a gift and a curse. And I don't like to say curse because given the, 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 the topic of your book, it's a great thing. Like, we're not all meant to be the same. And that's what society's about, right? Our differences and things of that nature. So I, that's why I love your work. And uh, before we close it out, I want to ask, you can do, well, well, we got five minutes. So I would ask, it could be either for awkwardness or romantic relationships, but something you can give, like, if you just gave one quick one to two minute advice on if I was to go from this statement out into the dating world or into my social awkward or being less social awkward, what would that advice be? If you could just sum it up in like a kind of like a one to two minute, like to leave them on that note. Uh, I, I certainly guess that I can't resist though, to bring up one quick analogy. Uh, so I love what you said about that, the athletes. And um, it, it made me think about, I don't know if you, you saw this documentary about the dream team that came out recently. Uh, I heard about it, but I didn't see it. Yeah, it was, it was it's, it's great. And uh, you know, some of the athletes, we're talking about this night they all went to the club and um so so i'll go to, to the club uh these dream team uh you know athletes and they're having a great time and they get back like four or five in the morning kind of stumbling through the lobby and they bump into kobe <laughs> and <laughs> kobe is like in his gym shorts and they're like go what, what you know what, what are you doing man and he's like i'm gonna go practice i don't know what you all fools are <laughs> are doing but i'm gonna i can go to the gym you know and so here he is like just obsessed with his craft and and honing it and you know before you knew it guys are showing up maybe not five in the morning but guys are showing up 7 a.m in the gym doing the same thing getting that same obsessive kind of spirit and like you know a lot a lot of the teammates said like th that was actually key to that group's success was mm -hmm. this kind of razor sharp focus and persistence that that uh Kobe modeled for for everybody else. So, um, anyways, that was a cool kind of cool kind of example. I, I think you know when it comes to awkwardness in general, um, and if, if people kind of thought about oh, so what's the key to not being awkward or better navigating my social situations and my social life, it, it, to me it kind of comes down to two things. Like when I think about my relationships with other people, I think there's two things I can expect and two things that they should absolutely expect from me. You know, number one, um, am I being fair? 
Okay, so are things relatively equitable between me and the other person? That could be an exchange of time. That could even be an exchange in a conversation. Like, am I listening to and attending to the other person, giving them an opportunity to speak and talk about the things that are interesting to them? Uh, you know, it could be all sorts of different things. But, you know, fundamentally, is this relationship fair? And to do that, because we're a little bit selfish, we kind of have to overcorrect yeah. and try to give a little bit more, or be be a little bit generous or be a little more kind than we might naturally be. Um, so over contribute just a little bit, to be fair. The second thing is to be thoughtful. And we're going to have differences of opinion. Um, we're going to make mistakes, you know, in our social relationships and, and, and trip up. But, you know, for me, if the other person had been thoughtful about it, that, that goes uh, a really long ways towards me being cool with our difference of opinion or, you know, the differences that we have in our interpersonal relationship. So, you know, be thoughtful, be fair. I think if people really work and focus on exhibiting that in every aspect of their interpersonal relationships, the data would suggest that they're going to be just great, right? Um, in the long run, as far as building long-term relationships that are uh, sturdy and, and gratifying. Yes, that's, I agree a hundred percent. Couldn't have said it better. People might seem basic, but if we practice it, I'm sure it could be more effective and efficient. So to close it out, uh, drop any uh, plugs for anything you got going. I think you have this new project you're working on. You want to plug that? Is that out yet? I, I did a couple of new online courses with this company called Infajoy and uh you know really in, in enjoyed that that was that was a cool kind of new project for me to do i did a course on dating another course on on awkwardness um yeah if, if people want to learn more they can just you know go on my website or or social media and got the books you know uh, out there as well we just had the second edition of the science of happily ever after come out and uh but uh yeah i hope you know i hope this was of interest to some folks or helpful in some kind of way and Really appreciate the opportunity to get to chat with you. I think we've shared a lot of common interests. Uh, and oh, so it was really fun to talk about some of these things. No, I'm very grateful. Thank you for coming on. And I appreciate it. So got that, guys, if you want to learn more about better interpersonal relations, whether it be dating, uh, friendship, familial, or just being better socially as a person in society, check out The Science of Happily Ever After, as well as Awkward by Dr. Tatashiro. And get your mind right, as always.